Okay, this week's Parsha is called Shemini, like I said. And it's found in the book of Leviticus, starting with chapter 9. Now, because we're cons- we have an, an hour, only an hour, we're not going to go through the whole thing. But I want to go to the, the main part of what this is talking about and talk about that. And so we're going to kind of lead up to it and then we're going to talk about because this is a, a very um, complicated Parsha. It's a very perplexing Parsha of what happened, what was going on here. And it's called Shemini because it's talking about what happened on the eighth day of the dedication of the tabernacle now this is when the tabernacle is first dedicated after it has been completed and um, Moshe is having Aaron come and, and officiate as the high priest for the first time so this is the first time that there's actually in the tabernacle an altar um, a sacrifice on the altar on behalf of all of the people the first sacrifice that is brought of course is he says take for yourself a calf and the the sages say that this was on behalf of Aaron himself it's for himself to cleanse himself as the priest so he can represent the, the people and the first thing is a calf in order to cleanse him of the sin of the golden calf so that's the first thing that happens and then later on there's going to be um, there's also going to be uh, a goat and this is to cleanse the people it's later when it comes down to the sacrifice for the people there is a goat and that's to cleanse the people of the sin of the sale of Yosef because the brothers took the coat of Yosef and dipped it in the blood of a goat and so you see all of these harking back to old sins and this is what the sacrificial system was really all about was to cleanse from sins and so all of this um, symbolism is here in the very first sacrifices at the dedication of the temple it's not like they start out with a clean slate it's in order to clean the slate that the temple exists in the first place or the tabernacle was was created in the first place and so this is what he um, Moshe had Aaron bring and then what happens is that he puts the the, the um, sacrifice on the altar and he is not supposed to put fire to it. <clears throat> he is supposed to wait for fire to come from heaven. And interesting, let me backtrack a minute. At this point in time, you know, up until now, Moshe has been the one officiating. And now Hashem makes it really, really clear no Aaron is going to be the high priest Aaron will be the high priest and his sons will be the high priest after him not Moshe and the reason for that is also because it's something that happened because Moshe did not want to go back to Egypt to bring the people out Aaron actually had a stronger connection with the people of Israel than Moshe did and we see this in the whole idea of that Aaron was known as the peacemaker. Aaron was the one who was approachable. He was the one who was always loving and compassionate to the people and bringing people together who had, were at odds with each other. This was his character. It really wasn't Moshe so much. Moshe was more um, hard to approach than Aaron. And so that was one of the reasons that Aaron was more suitable to be the high priest this is something that was in his character it's like Hashem had this in mind from the very beginning and it stands to reason it's, it really is logical because Aaron was actually the first was the firstborn son and so it was really logical that it should be Aaron unless there was some terrible reason that this would be taken away from him but because we have all of these ideas up until now of certain times when the oldest son was not the Bihor was not the one who was going to be taking the the place of the heir 
you kind of get this idea, especially because Moshe is the one who call, is called to be the leader of the people. And in the beginning, when Moshe is called to be the leader of the people, he's concerned that Aaron is going to be upset by that. Because, after all, Aaron is older. But Aaron's not upset by that at all. It's just in character. Right in the flow of his character. He's happy for Moshe. He's happy that he's the leader. And so here we have the the other one, the um, the reverse of that. That when Moshe is told, no, you aren't going to be the Kohen Gadol, and your sons will not be the heir of the priesthood, it's going to be Aaron, and it's going to be his son. You could think that, yeah, there was a little disappointment in Moshe, but he, at the same time, was happy for Aaron. And this shows us something very, very deep, because through all of this history, of from the time of Cain and Abel, through all of this, there's been this rivalry between the brothers. And with Moshe and Aaron is the first time that this rivalry has had a, a real tikkun, a real healing, is Moshe and Aaron. So Moshe and Aaron personify like the right and the left leg because just like the right and the left leg that you need them both together in order to walk, Aaron and Moshe work together as in the leadership of the people. And we see this all through the wilderness experience, all through the coming out of Egypt and all through the wilderness experience where they weren't jealous of each other. They weren't vying for the other one's position. Each one of them was happy when the other one was lifted up. And so, just so, Moshe was happy that Aaron was given the position of the high priest. So, Aaron was told, and up until now, it, was, it wasn't real, real clear all of the details. We have to remember this. All the details of what the priest was supposed to do were not real clear because this is the first time that there is going to be a sacrifice on behalf of all the people of Israel. It's the first time that Aaron, as the very first high priest, is officiating the tabernacle services. And so he brings the offerings first for himself, to cleanse himself so that he's worthy to bring for the people of Israel. And then he brings for the people of Israel their offerings. And when he put this offering on the altar, the offering for the people, for the for the uh, people of Israel, was expecting. He was told not to put the fire to it. He was not supposed to light the fire. He was supposed to wait. And so he waited. And the fire did not come down from heaven. And so he was concerned he was very concerned that maybe he wasn't worthy maybe this was an indication that he wasn't worthy and then Moshe and Aaron did pray and they prayed together and then the fire came down from heaven to consume the sacrifice and this was the first offering and it came down and one of the things that our sages tell us is, was a reason that the fire didn't come down right away <clears throat> was that we, so we would not make the mistake of thinking that it's like a formula that you put the, the, um, put the sacrifice on the altar and there's this fire that comes down from heaven that it's some kind of a, a formula like in the pagan ideas of this that it was like the gods eating the sacrifice or something like that. It was it was to dispel that kind of thinking that it was connected with the prayers that he turned to the sacrifice of the people of Israel. Now, where I want us to take this up is in actually the 10th chapter. I want us to go through that a little bit slowly. And this is the, the story of the sons of Aaron, Nadav and Avihu. Now, this is a very important part of the Torah, and it sets a precedent here. 
And I know that all of you have been in Rabbi Beck's class where he talks about fractals, where he talks about um, these ideas, these patterns that repeat themselves. Okay, here is the first time that this happens. And, and I want us to really look at what this is about because this is really like setting the stage for um, more than, I mean, we would think that even in the Exodus story that that would be setting a stage, but even this, and, and I want us to understand in a proper way of how this is setting a stage for um, sanctification of Hashem's name through martyrdom. And this is kind of, you might look at this and you might think that it's kind of a stretch. Because when you first read this story from the written Torah, what you read is, Nadav and Avihu messed up. They sinned. And they came near to God with strange fire. They blew it and he punished them and that's the end of the story. But that's way not the end of the story. There's so, so much more to this than that. It's much deeper than that. So let's just start with the text itself. And that's starting in the 10th chapter in the first verse. And Aaron's sons, Nadav and Avihu, each took his pan, put fire into them, and placed incense upon it. And they brought near before God strange fire, which he had not commanded them. Now, well, let's just read on a little bit and then go back then fire went forth from before God and consumed them and they died before God and Moshe said to Aaron this is what God spoke saying I will be sanctified by those near to me and thus I will be honored by all the people and Aaron was silent now this in just three verses we have a tremendous story a tremendous story with a lot of depth that has had a lot of commentary written about it now the first thing that you think when you first read this and you have a hint in the written Torah here that it's not what you first think because of what Moshe says he says in the third verse this is what God spoke saying I will be sanctified by those near to me and thus will I be honored by all the people. Now that would be a strange reaction if the only thing that had happened was these two guys messed up. Now they did mess up. And so there's a lot to be said here. First of all, Aaron, had brought, Aaron was the high priest. And he was the only one who was authorized. Not even Moshe was authorized at this point. Aaron was the only one authorized to bring a sacrifice to Hashem. And he was told, now as the priest, as any of the priests, the high priest or any of the priests, they have to follow exactly the rules, exactly the way they're told to do it. They can't deviate. They can't say, oh, well, I think this might be more meaningful if I do it like this. Not allowed. They're not allowed to make any kind of deviation whatsoever. They have to do it exactly as they're told, exactly as it is prescribed, not deviating one iota from it. There's been a lot of controversy on this. During the time of the temple, there was a, um, a struggle between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. I'm sure that you have heard of this. One of the things that was a struggle between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and by the way, Later on, in later years, the heirs of the Pharisees became the rabbis. The rabbis of rabbinical Judaism were the um, philosophical or the um, like the students of the Pharisees. Now, the heirs or the philosophical heirs of the Sadducees or the Sadduchim is how we say it in Hebrew were called the Karaites. Now, one of the things that they had a, a debate on was, and, and it's interesting because the Sadducees were the ones who were actually the aristocracy of the temple. There was a, the way that 
on Yom Kippur, the way that the incense was supposed to be done on Yom Kippur was a certain way that was very difficult. It was very difficult because they had to do all the preparation inside the Holy of Holies. And without spilling one drop of that incense, they had to hold a spoon in, the ma- in his mouth and he had to pour it in a certain way and he had to hold, you know, the way he had to hold everything and he had to sort of juggle it around without spilling a drop. And it was difficult. And so, the Sadducees came up with an idea of making it simpler by getting it ready before they went into the Holy of Holies and so they wouldn't spill it and it wouldn't be so difficult. But this was forbidden. This was absolutely forbidden because it had been laid out that they had to do it in a specific way. Now you might think that that's a lot of a lot of habaloo, you know, a lot of um, making a, a mountain out of a molehill, or just nitpicking over things, small things that don't matter. But it matters. It matters very, very much so. And we understand that by looking at this passage here in the Torah of how much it mattered. The fire was coming down from heaven. The fire coming down from heaven to consume the sacrifice on the altar was a fire that was for the the sacrifice of the people of Israel that was one. The fire was one. It was a there was a oneness to the whole idea. One people worshipping the one God and they were together in the one sacrifice. There was a oneness to it. So, Nadav and Avihu, and it's very specific how even in the Hebrew, it says each took his pan. How they did not consult anyone. They were making this decision totally on their own. They didn't even consult each other. Each one independently said, I'm going to take fire from my hearth and I'm going to ignite the incense in my fire pan and I'm going to bring it before the Lord. So, they were not, they, it was an independent thing. They were not actually wanting to participate in this sacrifice that was unified for the whole people. They wanted their own. They wanted their own independent ritual separate from the people this was one of their this was uh, flaw number one because they were like saying by this that the one sacrifice for everybody that one fire was not as significant as one they could bring for themselves and I mean think about it the fire was coming from heaven but yet, they were going to bring fire from their own hearts. And this is why it is called strange fire. So, here in Hebrew, <clears throat> just a second. It's called Aish Zara. Strange fire. Now, when we talk about idolatry, I think that maybe you know enough Hebrew to recognize this. We call it Avodah Zara. The same word. Avodah Zara. Strange. And in that case, it's like Avodah is like work or it is like service. Now, in this case, it is the same word, zara. It's separate. It's strange. It's not a part of the oneness. So, they were bringing this strange fire. They wanted to do everything their own way. Now, the Midrash goes even further to say other things that they had done that were wrong. And we're going to see that in a little while that they had done this, um, some other things that they had done wrong. And it's, and it's borne out by the written Torah. So each of them took their fire. They did not ask. They did not ask Aaron for counsel. They did not ask Moshe for counsel. And this was another thing that they did wrong. Because Aaron was the high priest. 
Nadav and Abihu were his sons, yes. But look how it says it. Aaron's sons. Nadav and Abihu. They were Aaron's sons, yes. But they were part of the people of Israel. First of all, they were part of the people of Israel. They were not first and foremost Aaron's sons. They were first and foremost part of the people of Israel, as were all of his sons. When Aaron stepped forward to be the high priest, he was the high priest of everybody. And they did not ask him, the high priest, for his advice. They did not ask Moshe for his advice either. So this shows their conceit and their arrogance that they thought that they were so superior because they were Aaron's sons. They, it went to their heads. They thought they were so superior that they were the ones. And it was another thing that it says is that they were in a hurry that they should be the ones to take over. Moshe and Aaron should hurry up and get out of the way so they can be the ones to take over because theirs will be so much more superior. So, on the surface, even with all of that, you think, well, they really messed up. Because they did something that, notice this in this uh, first verse, that Hashem had not commanded. And this is a very crucial point. That Hashem had not commanded them. They could only do, especially when it came to the temple service, they could only do what was commanded, no more, no less. So the fire came down from heaven and consumed the sacrifice. And then the fire went forth from before God and consumed them. So the fire went from the altar. Now understand this. It went from the altar and it went to them. And it went into their nostrils and it consumed their souls from inside we see this in the fourth verse where Moshe calls their cousins Mishael and Elitzaphan calls them to come and take them away the, the Midrash tells us that their bodies were not burned their clothes were not singed it burned them from the inside they died instantly now earlier I was talking about how <coughs> this is like the beginning of a pattern a beginning of a pattern that has borne itself out over and over in the Jewish people of sanctifying the the name of Hashem through this terrible martyrdom now we have a word that is very commonly used in our time the word is holocaust Now, in the dictionary, if you look up the word holocaust, it says, a sacrifice wholly consumed by fire. This is the literal meaning of the word holocaust and the reason that it was used for the tragic pogrom of World War II. Because it is is associated with fire, with the crematoriums and so on. And so we see this beginning of this pattern here with Nadav and Avihu. Now, any time that somebody dies like this, somebody dies, there had to be some kind of a sin. There had to be some reason that Hashem could do this. And as hard as that is for us to say, that even, you know, the martyrs that we think of, like the ten martyrs that we talk about on Yom Kippur, and you know we never think about any of the sins they could have possibly committed the truth is for them to have made that sacrifice for them to have been worthy of that death of that suffering and those martyrs suffered terribly my opinion is Nadav and Avihu died instantly but those martyrs died terrible painful deaths and each one of them had his own thing, but there is more. And we were talking about, Russell asked the question one time, if we were going to talk about reincarnation. And actually, the whole story of the Ten Martyrs is a story about reincarnation. That the Ten Martyrs 
came to understand that each one of them was a reincarnation of the ten brothers who had sold Yosef. And they knew that this was like the ultimate, that they had, this was going to be the end, the real payment, because the brothers themselves had committed a crime for which the penalty is death. And they themselves did not, were not killed. The penal, the crime that they committed was a crime that is one of the Noahide laws. And that is theft. Theft of a human being. Kidnapping. And so the, the um, horrible emperor, Hadrian, said to them, well, <clears throat> he had been studying the Torah, and he says, this is the, the penalty for this. And nobody has, uh, and the brothers weren't killed. So I've decreed that you are going to die. So this is an example here of how the terrible things that happen could not happen if there was not some sin involved. And here, Nadav and Avihu do commit a sin. They do err. They are guilty of all of these things. They're guilty of a number of things. But yet, in the third verse, and here's where things get very perplexing. In the third verse, Moshe says to Aaron, This is what God spoke, saying, I will be sanctified by those near to me, and thus I will be honored by all the people. So, what's going on with this? He's not saying, these two guys, your sons, really messed up. He's talking about sanctification of Hashem's name. And so I want to just look at this from... uh, I'm going to read a little bit about this from Rabbi um, Hirsch. He says, The more a person stands out from among his people as a teacher and leader in relation to me, the less I will show indulgence for his errors. Even by having him die, I demonstrate that my will is absolute and that not even, indeed, least of all, those nearest to me, the highest before me, may permit themselves the slightest deviation from it. This will make the entire nation realize that full solemn import of obedience they owe me. Seen in this light, the words of God should be sufficient. Consolation for Aaron, so that the text can indeed state, and Aaron was silent, had his son's not been chosen to God had not been close to God allowance might have been made for their aberration and heavenly decree that overtook them might not have come to them as a warning of such solemn import for the entire nation in sharpest deviance uh, divergence from the modern view which regards intellectual attainments as a license for moral laxity and tends to make allowances for violators of God's moral law if they happen to be men of intellect Judaism postulates that the higher the intellect the greater must be the moral demands upon it now that's one opinion of this this is one view of this but there is another view the other view is this Bushing knew that there was going to be a sanctification of God's name and that there were going to be two people who were going to be taken and he thought that it was going to be him and Aaron but then it wasn't him and Aaron at all it was these two sons and like I said there was reason for this because they had sinned and and it's a difficult thing to us to understand but we know that it wasn't just they were wiped out because they were sins and that was it the end of them There's a lot more to this because later when we have the story of Pincus when he um, kills Zimri and Cosby when they're um, blaspheming Hashem they're blaspheming uh, the Mishkan and Moshe's position we're told that the souls of Nadav and Avihu actually went into Pinchas, empowering him, giving him extra strength. 
that the souls of, of Pincus, I mean, I'm sorry, of Nadav and Avihu actually become, they're, they're together. And they become this zealousness for the sanctification of, of Hashem's name after they have died here. They're reincarnated as Pincus so that he can do this great feat. And then they're reincarnated again as um, Eliyahu, Hanavi, Elijah the prophet. So, and this is from the Ari. And he talks about the Ari Zal. And he talks about how they are this zealous spirit that goes into, that becomes the spirit we know as Eliyahu the prophet. And then that double portion goes into Elisha that gives them the zeal to sanctify the, the name of Hashem. So this is the other side of that coin, that zealousness, that it is, um, it is the sanctification of Hashem's name. So on the one hand, they died because they had committed a sin, just like we look at the ten martyrs. And they are taking upon themselves, their personal sin, yes, but they're taking upon themselves to die for the ten brothers, who did not die for the sin of selling Yosef. And then, we don't remember that. We don't remember the sin or any of that. We remember that they were martyrs for the sanctification of the name of Hashem. And this is essentially how we remember through the Torah readings it comes back and it comes back and it comes back. And that's what I was saying about like the fractal idea the patterns of it repeating over and over and over and over that Nadav and Avihu come back and they come back and it's always with the idea of zealousness, of sanctification of Hashem's name and so on the one hand they're being punished but on the other hand Hashem is saying it's almost like saying that they're being taken as an offering that their zealousness itself is honored by Hashem and that is taken as an offering so they themselves lay their lives down without realizing they're going to do it of course and that's a punishment on the one hand and on the other hand it's like a uh, it's like an offering and we would wonder how in the world you know because we don't believe in um, human sacrifice so it's different from when pagans take a person and put him on the altar. It's totally different. Because this was Hashem doing this. This was Hashem doing this because they were committing a sin. But he was at the same time... Is this clear? Am I saying it in a way that makes it clear enough? Because I know that it's a really difficult idea to get your mind around but is everybody kind of getting what I'm saying here? Okay, good. Alright. <clears throat> so then after that, Moshe called Mishael and Elitaphon, the sons of Aaron's uncle Uziel, and said to them, Draw nearer and carry your brethren from before the sanctuary out of the camp. So, he's having them draw the bodies out and take them out of the camp. Oh, uh, Kurt, uh, Russell says he thinks so. Okay, I hope that it's going to become clearer. And they drew nearer and carried them out in their tunics. You see? Out in their tunics, out of the camp, as Moshe had spoken. So you can see that their clothes were not burned up by this. Moshe said to Aaron and to his sons, Eleazar and Itamar, Do not let your heads remain unshorn, and do not make rent in your garments, lest you die, and lest he be angry with the entire community. But your brethren, the entire house of Israel, shall bewail the burning that God has kindled. So the people of Israel were allowed to mourn, but the priests, the family of these two young men, were not allowed to mourn because they're right in the middle of this service that they are doing for the house of Israel. And do not move away 
from the entrance of the tent of the the appointed meeting, lest you die. For the oil of God's consecration is upon you. They did according to Moshe's words. God spoke to Aaron, saying, Drink no wine or strong drink, you and your sons who stand by you, when you go into the tent of the appointed meeting, so that you will not die. This is an everlasting statute for your descendants. Now, until now, we don't see that he has said this. And so, there is an idea that that was another thing Avihu and Nadav had done, was that they had been drinking. They had been celebrating the um, dedication of the tabernacle, and so they had been drinking. And here, Moshe says, don't drink while you're doing the services. And this is also in order to differentiate between the sanctified and unsanctified and between unclean and pure and to teach the sons of Israel all the laws that God has uttered for them through Moshe. Moshe spoke to Aaron and to his surviving sons Eleazar and Itamar saying, Take that homage offering which is left over from the fire offerings of God and eat it as matzot beside the altar for it is a holy of holies. Eat it in a holy place, for this is your due and your son's due from the fire offerings of God, for so I was commanded. And you shall eat the breast of the wave offering and the thigh of the uplifted donation in a pure place, you and your sons and your daughters with you, for they have been given as your due and your son's due from the meal of peace offerings of the sons of Israel. Let them bring the thighs of the uplifted donation and the breast of the wave offering from the fire offerings of the fat parts in order to make a wave offering before God. It shall be an eternal due for you and for your sons who stand by you as God has commanded. So Moshe is now he's detailing exactly what the priests are supposed to do with the offerings that nothing is to be left over. Moshe inquired in detail about and here, see, he's asking Hashem, because this is the first time they've done this. He asked, inquired in detail about the goat, the he-goat of the offering that clears him who brings it of sin. And lo, it had already been burned. And he was angry with Eleazar and Itamar, the surviving sons of Aaron, and said, Why did you not eat the offering that clears him who brings it of sin in the place of the sanctuary, seeing that it is a holy of holies. <clears throat> and that he gave it to you precisely in order to lift away the sin of the congregation to effect atonement for them before God. As see here was the, the goat. We were talking about the goat earlier that was the um, to cleanse the people of Israel of the guilt of the sale of Yosef. See, his blood was not brought into the interior of the sanctuary. You should have eaten it in the holy place as I have commanded. And Aaron said to Moshe, and here Aaron is for the first time speaking, and notice, I'll, I'll talk about that in a minute. See, today they have brought near their offering that cleared him, who brings it of sin, and there is sin offering to God. And then such befell me. If I had eaten today's offering that clear him and brings it of sin, would that have been what is right in the eyes of God? And when Moshe heard this, it was right in his eyes. Now, this is a little bit confusing. This is just a little bit confusing about uh, exactly what is going on here. And so just a second. It was a it was a question because there's so many things going on at the same time. It was really a question about when everything was brought into uh, when the sacrifices were brought, and the reason is that if the sacrifices it because the death happened in the midst of all of the sac of the services, and so according to Jewish law, if a family has a death in the family, then the family is called Onan. <coughs> Excuse me. 
and they're not allowed to participate in any services. If a person is Onan, he's not allowed. Uh, and this means, okay, let me explain what that means. It means if a man hears that there has been a death in his close family, he cannot make a minion. He cannot daubin. He cannot do anything. He is exempt. He may not come and do the services. He's not supposed to. Until after the funeral. After the funeral is over, then he can go and he can make a minion. But in that interval of time between the death and of hearing of the death and of the, the funeral, he is called in a status called Onan. And so, that is what Aaron was wanting. Aaron was defending his sons. He was defending their action as being correct, since they could not have eaten of it that night. Now, that was his opinion, because their brothers had died. The only one who's really exempt from that is the high priest. He is never, never Onan. And so, this was why you noticed that it says right after the death and we're going to talk about Aaron now right after the death of Nadav and Avihu Aaron is silent Aaron is silent he doesn't say anything he doesn't protest he doesn't say a word he completely controls his emotions how hard is that? because he is totally submissive to the will of Hashem Aaron is the personification of the sphere of Hod. Hod is surrender, it is submission, it is thanksgiving and praise. This is the high priest. And Aaron is totally the personification of this. His ego is so submitted to Hashem's will that even when his sons die, he does not protest. He does not say a word. But then, with his living sons, when Moshe says this, hey, what are you doing? What you messed up? You should have eaten this this uh, a sacrificial offering. Then Aaron comes forward and he defends them and says, "Are they really supposed to? Would this be right in Hashem's eyes? What is their status? Would they have been doing the right thing or not?" You know, he brings a question because all of this is really brand new. We have to remember that it's not like they've had years of learning how to do this. This is a whole new situation and this is the very very first time the sacrificial service has ever been done in the tabernacle and so he's asking the question and he defends his sons so it says in the 19th verse <clears throat> and Aaron spoke to Moshe behold this day they have offered what did Aaron mean to say by this the explanation is Moshe said to them perhaps you sprinkled the blood of the sin offering of the new moon while you were still Onan and an Onan who performs the service invalidates the offering and therefore you burnt it see he's asking why was it burnt like that what happened and to this Aaron replied that Moshe should not be angry with his sons did they bring the offerings on that day they who are ordinary priests it was I that offered it he's telling Moshe it, it wasn't them it was me I as the high priest am uh, allowed to offer it when in Onan and this is also from Rashi that he says this <clears throat> so perhaps you offered it while you were on a name and then you invalidated it and so Aaron is defending his sons by saying no no they didn't I did it and I'm permitted to do it and so Moshe was coming to a conclusion jumping to a conclusion here so we can see here right here is a real good example of Aaron's character first of all Aaron doesn't say anything when his sons die like I said and then second of all he is the eternal peacemaker he's making peace between Moshe and his sons he is being very careful about what exactly the law is supposed to be, how the law is supposed to be followed to the letter. And in doing that, he's doing it in a very conciliatory manner. 
He's bringing the parties together. Moshe is he is very aggressive, and he's saying, "What have you done?" And Aaron's saying, "No, calm down. You know, it's okay." And you think about that, and you think about what a stature of character Aaron had to have in order to be able to do that at this time when all of these things are going on when all of this stuff is happening <clears throat> so that's that was the main thing I wanted to say about Aaron and so if you don't if you're not real clear on what I was saying about um about Nadav and Avihu, you can ask a question, but this is this is where it gets a little bit um, involved. Nadav and Avihu, on the surface from the written Torah, it looks like they just messed up. But when we go deeper into the mysteries, we realize that this is what Moshe was talking about, really, when he was talking about sanctification of Hashem's name. That they are, in spite of their sin, or through their sin that is being used for the sanctification of Hashem's name that on the one hand their action is being judged and on the other hand their intention is being judged that both things are being judged by the court of heaven their actions were wrong and they were going to be punished in the most severe way with death and even though it was conceited, it was arrogant, it was immature, it was immodest, you know, and so on and so forth. Their real intent was this zealousness, this zealousness for the for Hashem, that they wanted to serve Hashem in this in this way. And so we kind of pick out that diamond, and we see that, and that's exactly what Hashem was doing. He was picking out that diamond to allow their souls to be. Reincarnate, reincarnated to come into the world again and again in this way to reinforce that kind of zealousness in Pentecost, in Eliyahu, and in Elisha. Is that a little bit clearer, Russell? Okay, great. As I was saying, I wasn't sure I was saying it in a clear way. And I admit, this is a very, very hard Parsha. But it's a really important one for us to understand about, because we see here, martyrdom. We see something here where Hashem allows the people of Israel to suffer and to go to the pyre, to be tortured and burned and all these things and we think how in the world you know and on the surface the nations look at that and they say because they're bad because they sin and they don't see that together both parallel yes that's true and that allows that to happen but at the same time it is still sanctification of Hashem's name <clears throat> no it is not just in this case and it is in every case that the court of heaven sees the heart of man and in the court of heaven judges absolutely everything concerning um, what the person has done his intentions, his thoughts, his situation and the action that's what makes the court of heaven so much superior to us because they can see the heart whereas we as human beings just look at the surface and we go oh he messed up and so a lot of times there are things and there are actually sins that are listed in the Torah that are only judged by the court of heaven because there's no way a human court can judge it like coveting I mean we don't know the intention of the heart that, that one sin is completely the intention of the heart totally about the intention of the heart so that's a real big lesson for us but like I was saying, you know, this this one parsha really has the uh, the power to really change our views, really change our ideas as we look at at history, as we look at the things that just baffle our minds. How in the world could these things happen? Like the Holocaust, 
how in the world but yet we say in Israel we say this was a sacrifice and this was today Holocaust Memorial Day right Wasn't, isn't that right does anybody know it is nope sorry it was yesterday yesterday was Holocaust Memorial Day Yomer Show and so when you read these books about the Holocaust, when you read the stories about the Holocaust, you can think about them. I mean, the horrors that you read there. And people would say, how in the world could that happen? How in the world could a loving God allow that to happen? And we can know, on the one hand, yes, there had to be some sin that allows that to happen. It's just like the people going down to Egypt. It could not have happened except that there was some sin but it had to happen it was meant to happen in order for us to be able to come out of Egypt and receive the Torah and you know become the people of Israel it had to happen but it couldn't have happened if it hadn't been if there hadn't been some sin so on the one hand yes yes there's some sin there's some error there's some flaw that causes us to go into exile that causes us to have these horrible things happen but on the other hand you know Hashem works through these things he works through these catastrophes so that it's a double edged thing it's not just black and white it's not just this or that it's both things and it's together it blends together and it can be really difficult really difficult to get our minds around it and to really understand how that works and how that is but it is it is I mean we had through the history we've had inquisitions and pogroms and expulsions and all kinds of horrors and we think how in the world but yet we know and we're told and we say this on Yom Kippur when we read about the ten martyrs that it is for this it is the sanctification of Hashem's name in the world they died horrible deaths and so even though we read this and it looks like it was just they messed up it was still sanctification of Hashem's name and we can even look at it and we can say that this was a template that this was a template for what was going to follow time after time after time after time that there would be flaw that there would be a falling and these people would die but it would still be sanctifying the name of Hashem in the world so does anybody have a question okay just a second Miriam I was uh, reading the notes uh, in the Hamash on chapter 11 uh, the, on, on the dietary laws and I came across some things that that I really had some questions about and that I'd like to look into a little uh, in more detail and that is um, this part of it uh, verses 43 through 47 holiness and the laws of uh, Kashras. Um it, it makes mention here that um, uh the Jews that don't eat uh, kosher, uh, you know, they suffer not only they suffer uh, spiritually in the world to come, and uh, they have problems with the elevation um, uh, of elevating the soul, and and uh, they have all of these problems. Um, my question goes back to. Uh, you know, does any of that affect uh, uh, the Gentiles? Even though we're not commanded uh, uh, to be kosher, does the act of eating this food have any uh, bearing on us in the world to come, or uh, have anything like uh, anything like that? No, because Hashem gave all food to all of mankind for food. I mean, He gave all animals for food to all mankind. And so, for all mankind, all animals were kosher. 
until he gave the Torah to the Jewish people. Now remember, the Jewish people, right from the very beginning, are called to be a nation of priests. So just like Moshe told the sons of Aaron that they had to eat these sacrificial animals, the things that are brought to the altar, the Jewish people are restricted to only being able to eat things that are fit for the altar. The whole nation. Now, of course, I, as a regular, normal um, Israelite, cannot eat those things that are for the priest in the temple. And we have to be careful of that. That's why we have our ties and so on, that we don't eat certain parts of the food that are given to the priests. Even now, we take, take out of that, especially in the land of Israel, we take out of that. But, for every Israelite, we may only eat things that are fit for the altar because we are a nation of priests. So just as there are things that the priests are supposed to eat that I don't necessarily, uh, in fact, I'm, I'm not allowed to eat it. We're not allowed to eat those things that are the portion of the priests. Now, non-Jewish people are allowed, of course, to eat kosher food. Yes, you can eat that. But the law commanding that we only eat this is only to the people of Israel. And because every law that is given to us that we live in this world has a deeper effect upon us. Every law has an effect upon our souls. Every law that we are commanded to observe has an effect on our souls. And if we decide, well, I'm just not going to do that, it, it is, just like you said, going to have an effect on our souls not being able to elevate in the world to come. But for a non-Jewish pe- person, he is not commanded here. And so if he decides, well, I'm only going to eat kosher animals, well, fine and good. But if he does decide that he's going to eat these things that we're forbidden to eat, it's not going to affect his soul in a negative way because he is not violating any law. Is that clear? I mean, we have to just understand that we are, we are if we keep the laws that we are commanded to observe, then we are observant. And for a Jewish person, this includes these laws of kashrut. For a non-Jewish person, it, it, it is the seven laws of Noah. And he is allowed to eat anything he wants to, but he has to be careful not to li- eat the limb of a living animal, and he has to understand what that means. Okay, I, 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 that uh, uh, was explained to me very good. Uh, some points... Uh, I've never really uh, had to address that way, and it's very clear. The other uh, part of this, I guess, question, I guess the the underlying thing that I'm trying to get a grasp of is the actual elevation of, uh, of the Gentile soul. Do do we have, or you know, uh, are we able to elevate? Uh, um, uh, do, does things hurt us in our elevation? I guess what you're saying is. Uh, uh, these uh, not keeping the the Noahide laws it would would uh, affect us in the world to come, or you know, affect the elevation of our soul uh, here. And um, the the other thing that I was curious about is in uh, conversion the um, the elevation of uh, of the soul in the, in the conversion process to Judaism. Does that uh, uh, bring a Gentile into a different elevation of their soul as the same as the Jews would be okay um, The first of all when you were talking about keeping the laws of Noah the soul of man is we are made in the image of God and all human beings are bin Adam we're all descended from Adam and the soul was created in Adam. Now, there are differences of opinion on all of this, and but I have to tell you, if you're descended from Adam, and I'm descended from Adam, and, his, and the thing that makes Adam different from the animals is his soul, then you also have the same kind of soul. And 
There are parts of Adam's soul, as you read certain Kabbalistic books, that are branches that were non-Jewish people, like Yitro. Yitro is mentioned in Sefer Gilgalim, which is the book of reincarnation. It mentions Yitro. Yitro was not born Jewish. He, he was a non-Jewish person, as we know. And so, his soul was connected to the root of Cain. But, that gets involved. And I'm not even going to go there. But, and that's not a negative thing, by the way. You know, in Kabbalistic thinking, being in the root of Cain is not a negative thing. Many of our sages were also from the root of Cain. So, that's the first thing. And what we have to remember is that we should keep those things that pertain to us. When a person decides that he is going to convert, he's waking up to something in his soul. It's, it's a destiny. It's uh, where you fit, where you plug in. Some people are meant to live in the world as Jews, and some people are not meant to live in the world as Jews where we plug in the best thing that anybody can do the highest thing that anybody can do is to fulfill his own purpose in the world the worst thing that a person can do is try to be something he is not and we're told that a Ben Noah who fulfills the laws of Noah is on the level of the high priest of Israel it's a very high thing for a Ben Noah to live the laws of Noah and it's not a simple thing a lot of times people say oh well it's just seven it's not just seven it's not simple those are seven categories of very complex law that's why it's important to learn those laws and it's not a simple life to say I'm going to live a life that is going to sanctify the name of God with my every breath a non-Jewish person a bin Noah can do that just as much as a Jewish person. Every person in the world living in a way that is sanctifying the name of Hashem with his every deed, with his every day, of his every life, of his life, sorry, I got carried away there, is what brings redemption into the world. So, you know, if you do decide, if a person does decide that he is really has to be Jewish because this is just who he is and he has to be part of Israel all well fine and good and then he's under obligation to keep more of the laws and he's under obligation through a vow that he has to take that he's going to obey those laws and that's also not easy so each person has to decide where he fits into the world and how he can best fulfill his purpose in life and that's only something that only each individual can decide. Did that answer your question? Okay, great. Is there anything else? Does anybody else have any more to add? We didn't get into the laws of Kashrut because I knew that we only had an hour, like I said, and we pretty well zipped through the chapter that I did want to cover. So it was uh, it's a very involved teaching, and I really didn't go into it in the depth that it really deserves, but... <clears throat> I think we got the the idea of it, and that was what I was I was wanting us to do. So Glenn has something to add.
Okay, I'm glad that was. Uh, I'm glad that helped you as well. <coughs> now tomorrow we're going to tomorrow night we're going to be talking in our um, healing class on a subject that I think is going to be really important. It's um, it's good if we can if everybody can be in both of these classes because a lot of times I find myself kind of meshing them together and mentioning points from each one of those classes. And to tell you the truth, I have been studying a lot of things for the healing class that brought me to an, uh, some new understanding about this Parsha, about Nadav and Avihu, what happened with them. Um, I read about them in uh, Sefer Gilgalim, where the Ari really talks about, a little, uh, about it a lot, how they come back and they come back and they come back. And um, and I've been reading some things about the Holocaust as well, and so it, it's been pretty important. You know, it's pretty important connection with all of these things. And another thing that this kind of tells us it, it's a it's a very interesting point too is how we look at this on the surface, how it looks like Nadav and Avihu really messed up. They did everything wrong, it looks like, on the surface. But then, he uses their souls afterwards for this incredible mission of sanctifying his name. So, it shows us the hope that Hashem can take things that look so bad and turn them around and use it as a vessel for for good use it as a vessel for his purposes it's just really amazing when we can really grasp that how he can redeem something like that and that's really what healing is all about is taking this horrible suffering that people go through and turning it around into a vessel for for light, a vessel for God, for good, for redemption. So, I encourage all of you to be in the class tomorrow night, and I'll uh, I'll see all of you then.